0: This is Hannah Arendt Between Worlds, a podcast co-produced by the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. I'm your host, Samantha Rose Hill. of Hannah Arendt's 1958 masterpiece, The Human Condition. She writes about the distinction between public and private life. For Arendt, this distinction is necessary to living a fully human life, where we're free to move between the private realm of the home, where we can experience solitude and the two-in-one dialogue of conversation that I have with myself, and the public space of appearance, where we can be recognized by others for who and what we are. But Arendt worried that this distinction was being lost to what she called the rise of the social, or what we might today call the rise of modern mass society. Arendt was worried that everything made was becoming an object of consumption to be used and thrown away. And unlike Karl Marx, who she was criticizing, who had been concerned with the alienation of the laborer, Arendt was concerned with the alienation of objects, what she comes to call modern worldly alienation. For Arendt, all thinking moves from experience, and the things and objects we encounter in the world that give structure to the spaces we move between mediate the experiences we have So how has space changed the way that we think? When I began curating this podcast for the Institute, I knew that I wanted to talk with an architect to explore the dimensions of public and private space to begin to understand how the shapeliness of the world around us is informing our thinking today.
1: Politics is imagination, how things also can be different. Well that's 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 my daily practice. That's what I do as an architect. I try to think how things also can be different.
0: Architect Hans Tierz and I discussed the importance of public spaces where chance meetings and new ideas and strangers can bump into one another. At the same time we discussed the essential need for private space where solitude, reflection and critical thinking can happen and we talk about how that space can be made available to everyone in society today, even the unhoused
1: in the uh... United States, most of these sidewalks are concrete labs, but in uh, Europe, it's often tiles. Just lift a few tiles and put trees in it. Below the surface, there's the beach.
0: <laughs> Renegade tree planting. Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. So making it more green, this appropriation of these spaces, yeah, or making it ambiguous, more ambiguous, is just recognizing the potentials of
0: particular uh, space yeah. In this episode, Hans Tiertz and I talk about how private and public spaces are designed and how these spaces affect our daily lives. Hans is a Dutch architect and urban designer who has spent a lot of time thinking with Hanna Arendt about the ways in which we make the world in common. And in addition to his private practice, he is also a senior scientific assistant and lecturer at the chair of the University in Theory of Urban Design, at the Department of Architecture at the ETH in Zurich, Switzerland. Please join me in welcoming Hans Tieritz to Between Worlds to think with Hannah Arendt. It's nice to be talking with you, Hans, and I want to jump right in. I want to actually read you a quote from The Human Condition that you put at the beginning of Reflections on Architecture with Hannah Arendt. She writes, To live in the world means essentially that a world of things is between those who have it in common, as a table is located between those who sit around it. And the world, like every in-between, relates and separates men at the same time can you talk to us a little bit about how you think with Hannah Arendt and why this quote is at the beginning of your of your journal on on architecture in Arendt
1: yeah um, that was a a very enlightening um, quote from Arendt for me and also for of course the other editors with whom I made this issue when Arendt is writing quite a bit about things you already said that in your in the introduction, but these things well that's that's rather rare for a political philosopher. I have the idea the, there is not so much, at least not to my attention, political uh, scientist that really discusses the things and how they, what our relationship with that is in relation to the political realm and political life. And then the uh, example of the uh, of uh, well, first say this. Ireland does not really mention architecture much. But the table, as an example, is uh, really revealing what she is uh, talking about uh, to my mind. Because when I think of a table, of course, I first have a physical object in mind, an object where we can sit around and where the people have a particular position. So that's, uh, to my mind, already an image of what she is arguing, that it unites it, it collects us around the table, as well as it separates us. Uh, so we have a particular position around the table, and from that position, we take part in the dinner or in the conversation. But as an architect, of course, I also uh, I I think not just a table, but I think of particular tables, indeed a dinner table or a table for uh, what uh, what you have in uh, in a cafe or uh, or at home, that are different tables, of course, and they invite you for different meetings, you can say, or different events can take place around the the table. This is really an an image that as an architect, you can think in in several ways about it. eh? Because it's the objects, it has a particular form. The form really helps you how you sit, eh? so a a table in a meeting room where you have a meeting uh, in a more business-like meeting, let's say that's rather a different table than uh, a cozy place in a restaurant, uh, of course. But then also, of course, when you enter the room and you see the table and it's nicely clothed and what is on the table that already reveals, let's say, the hey, what what will happen there around that, that table in a way. As well as, as, let's say, when you leave the table, you see quite a lot of traces, of course, what has happened around the table.
0: The pleasure so, of cleaning up indeed, after indeed, the dinner uh, party. Uh, yeah. The debris. <laughs> I was wondering if you could maybe draw this to... Hannah Arendt's conception of plurality and thinking about how none of us exist alone in the world. We all exist with others. We're all different. And how this informs the way that you're thinking about this table and the ways in which we invite people in or prevent them com- from coming in or say, keep out.
1: Yeah, the, uh, in that sense, the table is, of course, a very physical uh, example uh The way you sit around the table, I I really take that rather literally that you are sitting on a particular place and when there is a conversation, you actually take part in that conversation from that position. That's rather literally, but when I, I, let's say, transfer that to a more intangible, let's say, position, it's when the, the world is our, let's say, arranges and organizes our position in this world that we have in common. I do think that Ireland really argues that the position where we grow up and how we are, let's say, related to the world really condition us. So that means that that's actually preparing that experience that you mentioned. Eh? So that our thinking comes from that experience, but that experience is really related to this, well, to many things, of course, to what happens, but also to where you, where you live and how you from there really experience this tangible world. As an architect, of course, then I think how I actually enter the public world, going from the public to the private, that's already a way of um, experiencing this common world or preventing uh, of an experience of the common world.
0: And how you relate to yourself and to others, I think importantly for Arendt, the, the title, The Human Condition, that word condition there is doing a lot of work for her it refers to the conditions under which life is given to us this condition of plurality that we appear in the world with others but she's also thinking about the ways in which we are conditioned by the world around us and the things in the world around us and how everything we come into contact with immediately turns into a condition of our experience and our Mm -hmm. existence Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to just kind of follow up on on part of what you were saying about attending to this in-between space, the interessa that it goes on between us that aren't talks about. So mm-hmm. we're living in a time of increasing social isolation. And I'm wondering how you think about plurality when it comes to design, How do the buildings, the streets, the sidewalks, the parks, the play spaces, the tables, the kind of material artifice, of the world around us how does that affect the ways in which we relate or don't relate to one another
1: i think it has a real big impact on the on this relationship on on one another the way the city is organized uh, the particular strong figure is just an urban street And the urban street, that's of course a common figure in Europe more than in America, I have to say. But a street, for instance, it's of course an infrastructural space, but it really organizes a mixed uh, use. An urban space really in in a downtown area has shops, has indeed also public uh, buildings, it has dwellings, it has uh, restaurants and cafes as well, which attract quite a mix of public. In a rather concise area so it's a, a street is a rather small space but it has a lot of function and thus attracts quite a bit of people different people which is uh, then a space that you're uh, then then you have close relationships you have to deal with the differences or with other people in that space but when you think of the more broad spaces where actually car traffic is dominating and um then you see that there is actually no reason to really relate to one another. Less pedestrians probably over there uh, and there's not uh, a pressure or a density in the space. So then you can really neglect one another, you could say. It's not that in the the city street you will have conversations or so, but the awareness that you see one another, that's a figure of, of public space, I think, which is important. Just to know that there are others with very different ways of living or experiences or uh, whatever. Uh, that's the importance, I think.
0: The public space becomes a space for recognition, for being seen by others, which is...
1: For, yeah, for, for seeing and being seen. Eh? That's important for hearing and being heard. Eh? These, this is, uh, for me, also a very important note uh, of art, uh, in particularly, uh, of course, uh, designers like me we often start with a real idea of public space, that we will create a space where people really sit and talk to one another and that there's an exchange of ideas, this, this real idea, uh, kind of ideal of, um, of political life. That's what we have in mind. But I think it's, it's important to already note that rather qualitative, good design of public space, that people at least make use of it, maybe not in a real conversation with one another, but the moment that, that there is a possibility to see one another, the possibility to bump into one another, that's a, a moment of conversation often. That's important, I think.
0: So I'm, I'm curious about two things here. One is the privatization of these public spaces, which is what Arendt's talking about when she's describing the rise of the social Uh, where everything suddenly has a use value. And I'm also, I'm wondering about the imagination and design. So on the one hand, we we have use objects. The things that we use on a daily basis, whether that's a sidewalk or a coffee mug, have a certain use value for us. But at the same time, these objects that we interact with have an aesthetic quality. They can also be art objects, and I'm, so I'm, I'm wondering about this tension between consumerism, functionality, use, uh, and and design.
1: Yeah. I, I have at least two uh, responses there on two levels. Uh, because, of course, uh, architects, they make use uh, objects. In a way, they design spaces, they design benches, etc. But then, of course, you can do that in a very limited way. Yeah? So when I think of a bench, for instance, There's many ways to use a bench. So, of course, you can sit on it, you can lay on it, you can use it as a skateboard uh, venue. What you, of course, see in the city, and this is, let's say, urged by, of course, more safety uh, measures, uh, fear. Let's say fear shapes the city quite a bit. What you, of course, see is that benches, that they are now designed in such a way that you cannot lay on a bench to prevent, of course, homeless to stay on that bench. Uh, And, of course, also the city is really... Not inviting skateboarders to make use of the spaces, they make it in such a way that it's really difficult or or even uh, dangerous to use these kind of use objects in other ways than actually thought of. For me, is this this is really a limitation of these use objects? The ambiguous the ambiguity that a use object can have, that's I think a quality, and that brings us then also I think to the more the artistic uh, side. But that's actually a quote from Arendt that I always am am also a bit puzzled about. about So she is arguing that everything has a shape of its own.
0: Yes, a shapeliness, Uh, the shapeliness uh, uh, of things. Yes,
1: yeah. And on the one hand, that's of course, uh, that reminds me of, uh, uh, that. indeed, a theater looks like a theater and a coffee mug is a coffee mug. You can see it, it's a coffee mug. But this doesn't prevent it, of course, that there is coffee mugs in many colors or in many shapes. We still recognize it as a, a coffee mug. That's, I think, the importance, because for me, this is part of the plurality of the world and the plurality of the people.
0: The kind of other side of the, the personal imagination and intuition that the architect is bringing to the design itself is then the experience that people have with the design once it is implemented. And there's, there's an aesthetic idea that, yes, that can lead to pleasure, of some kind that we can take pleasure in the aesthetic qualities of the building, for example. But I think for RN it, there was also the idea that these things, these buildings, this artifice of the world helps us to create meaning. It's a form of storytelling to, to build these objects that then we navigate in our daily lives, that give form to ordinary, everyday existence do you think that it's possible to i guess two questions is it possible to separate the aesthetic quality from the functionality would that be no hans is shaking his head no at me you can't see him but i can um okay and the other question is are good so then Is there a kind of, I want to say, democratic promise in the relationship between what's possible aesthetically and the functionality of the design? Is that part of the plurality of the design itself, those benches that you were talking about that prevent homeless people from sleeping, for example?
1: I will come come back on that on that later question of effort, but I do think also that the first question that you uh, that you mentioned is very important in our profession, particularly in early modernism. That was of course quite a revolution in architecture, and then there was actually the idea, for instance, by the architect Le Corbusier, that architecture also should be like a machine, huh? so that there is a kind of logic in the architecture, and that brings the new form. How he did it was rather poetically, I think, but of course some of the um, how that turned into modern architecture sometimes it was indeed the idea that it was just form follows function now that Slogan never really was meant to be like that. Eh? So there was always this kind of poetic uh, idea, I think, behind. But of course, when costs needed to be reduced, or, or eh, in a kind of more dogmatic way, there was the idea that I don't know. Maybe the idea was that the the poetic or the the artistic was part of the functional. However, I I do think that we have learned, let's say that that even a slogan like that turned quite quickly in a more stylistic uh, program. So the, the kind of modern architecture became a stylistic. Uh, uh, the, the function was less important than the, uh, than the appearance in the end. So in that sense, there's always been a challenge there. And I do think also that now with the new computation models as well as algorithms, so there is still an idea or again an ID that we can objectify in the end architecture so that you can put it in the computer and the computer makes then the design Yeah, well, you generate it. And I don't believe in that in the end. I I believe that there is always that even the programming of the computer, there is a moment of choice. And that's more or less the moment of aesthetics uh, then. So even in the end, design never will be just uh, generated by uh, by a computer. I think, well, at least I would also argue we should not do that. For me, that's really an important uh, aspect because for me... In design, what comes together is actually the moment of judgment. So in design, you have to value the different um, interests, of course. So it, it cannot never be the interest only of the developer or the commissioner. You always have, to have people that have to live there or actually live in the opposite, uh, opposite uh, part of the street or that walk it every day it has an effect on the city it has an effect on our climate so there is many levels that you have to make a decision on it and you can try to objectify that in the computer but then you cannot explain it anymore to then you lose the political aspect and it,
0: and it, it strikes me that it becomes incredibly dehumanizing yes, exactly. um, yes. there's yeah. a quote that i'm reminded of from hannah Arendt's note cards where she writes, it, I think it's a little kind of memo to herself, the opposite of the beautiful is not the ugly, but the useful, the good mm. for.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a nice, nice one. Yeah.
0: a quote from the crisis in education. I want to keep talking about the home for a second and and then maybe go back to the public. So Arendt writes that these four walls, and she always described the home as the four walls, and that's also how she described her second husband, Heinrich Blücher, as her four walls. So these four walls within which people's private life is lived constitute a shield against the world and specifically against the public aspect of the world they enclose a secure place without which no living thing can thrive i'm really struck by the end of that quote this idea of an enclosure secure place that's necessary to not just to live but to thrive as a person can you maybe unpack this a little bit
1: well, it relates back there, of course, to the kind of holiness that, that Arendt also attaches to the private realm in, um, in the human condition, where she is really describing the wall as preventing uh, a moment of prevention of the private uh, there. For my mind, there's, there's at least two levels. Huh? So this life in public... It's really, it's of course, the harsh light. That's it. She's really valuing it and she's engaging with it, but she's also aware that a life cannot be lived only in public. So there is always a moment that you need to step back, withdraw from the from the light, and well, go back to yourself or to the members. Let let's say that uh, uh, you don't have to wear your mask, uh, in, in, a, in a way. I I think this moment of recuperation, eh, of also accessing your experiences or thinking eh, uh, is also a way of, eh, you, you need this kind of solitude uh, for that. So that's this kind of withdrawal from the public space. I do think, yeah, you yeah, know, uh, I only wanted to add to that. Eh, Arendt also argues that this private space, eh, this within the, these four walls, oh, she's Argues that it's also the space of love and mourning and and things that you need to go through in solitude. Maybe because it's also it's not something that you can easily describe in words. I think because the the public domain is of course the space of the of words and actions and uh, and these things. And some of these kind of personal experiences they are they are they make you speechless. So that's not part of the part of public space and it should be. Experienced in the private realm uh, there. But this needs them protection, of course, from this kind of I, yeah, the public space that makes everything transparent. For me, that's really also the figure of the homeless, uh, the unhoused. It's really hard for them, I think, to keep up their dignity. If you always have to be aware of uh, that you're not safe, that you're even in shelters uh, and how good they, they can be, but even then you're you're not on your own little. Moment, you cannot withdraw. I think it's uh, Shella Benabib that writes in her book that the homeless, that this experience that they sometimes are, are ghosts in our street. Yeah, it's it's maybe part because they don't have a place where they where there's a real stable place in their life where they can just be safe. That's I think part of these four walls that really are needed in the world.
0: When you're reading Artaud and the human condition. on on this distinction between private and public and the necessity of both to live a fully human life. Do you read that as an ethical command, in a way, as a designer to build spaces that allow for both private life and public life? And I'm curious more generally about the contemporary state of architecture and the ways in which streets and parks are being designed to incorporate or intentionally exclude unhoused peoples?
1: For me, it's it's an important lesson uh, that people need homes. So in that sense, it's uh, when I think ethical, then I think, yes, uh, the question is here, housing, can we really make that into a kind of commodity? So real estate as a speculative, uh, speculative um, financial instrument, that's that's really a challenge, I think, because uh, that, that, makes it, uh, that makes these ha- private houses with all their emotional aspects into commodities. And that's a difficulty. And then the other thing is, of course, when I think of the unhoused, eh, so that will be a problem, of course, that's not easily solved because there's lots of um, uh, problems coming together there. For me, first, of course, it will be a challenge to create real good, on the one hand, shelters. On the the other hand, programs and in that sense also spaces to get them into houses that really needs guidance and and social work. Architects, we can we can of course design these spaces, but that it's not the end of the problem. Uh, I, I I have to acknowledge. And then of course I also think that the city needs spaces where those people that really cannot live in ho- that, or, or one of, or the other reasons are on the streets, that they can be safe as well, that they can appropriate for a while. And so this kind of programs that when you are unhoused and you get a fine because you sleep on a bench or in a park or, or you have you set your tent in a kind of a green space somewhere, that's not a way to go, I think, because that's only creating more problems. And so, of course, we need to reach out. We need to help programs. But there will be people that, that in the end will still on the street and they have to be able to set up their own private spaces. And then, of course, I think of... But that's, that's, of course, more in the margin of architecture. And there is also ways of providing little shelters, giving them a cart that they can turn into a tent or whatever. Uh, so to make their space a little bit more stable and safe and, and, uh, and private. Uh, that that's important to me these three levels yeah
0: yeah i i think that you're you are describing the political stakes and the political importance of having these conversations in a public space to ensure that everybody has a right to privacy, a right to a private home where they can have these uh, experiences that you you were talking about before so beautifully of intimacy, of solitude that's necessary for thinking and of uh, those experiences that we can't find words for. You know, I'm reminded of in 1972, there was a panel on Hannah Arendt that she participated in. And at, at the very end of the panel, Hans Morgenthau says to her, all right, so the social question. You don't really mean that, do you? What do you mean by that? And she says, of course I mean it. You know, Let me give you an example. Housing. The question of whether or not everybody deserves a home is not a political question, she says. This is not up for debate. But it is a political question of how we distribute housing, And I thought that was an interesting example that she went to, in particular because she spent so much of her life as a stateless and homeless refugee, 18 and a half years. And when she's talking about home and high mat, which doesn't quite translate to home in English, but includes all of the other elements of being at home in the world, like language and comfort in one's manners and disposition, she talks about durability, and the need for durability while thinking about the fragility of the buildings and streets and lives in which we live. Can you talk a little bit about home and durability and public space?
1: Yeah, um, sometimes I think it's also important to maybe call it now Permanence, because durability has well at least in my profession uh, really this connotation of uh, sustainability uh, as well, and of course it's it's all related. That's of course um, when I think of sustainability, then of course I, I, I sometimes think of of buildings that they make from uh, from carton, for instance, paper. Yes. Uh, you can you can have it for two for two years and easily replace it by something else. And then you still have no waste because you can reuse it or make other boxes from it. But for me, the importance is indeed the permanence that you really can root somewhere. It starts just by little experiences. I think when you be at home somewhere, you have these kind of paths that you always walk in your house or and uh, so that even you can walk around with blinded eyes and you still can grasp uh, something from the from the fit, or or, uh, or you know let's say how things smell and and so that touches you I think to a particular place this is not only in your house but also you have that these kind of paths outside of your house to the bakery or to the uh, particular cafe or to you the metro station or so that's that's let's say ways of embedding yourself in the world, I think. That's making your also getting to know the world. It's through your own paths. And permanence is sometimes, I think, long term. But I experienced this myself as well when I was at Bart and we lived in New York. And we had a my, my oldest son was one year old, and we walked with him to the bakery every day. And just by doing that and by by getting to know all the shops and the uh, cafes and uh, in the end the at the bakery they recognized us so uh, of course with the baby that happens even in new york but that makes yourself at home huh? so even in a city like that you can have these kind of uh, paths it's of course extremely difficult i think in in our current uh, societies and cities but it's possible i think that that's the i think also the that's the power of permanence that you are On a particular place, and that you really try to adapt there, adapt, embed yourself in that particular place, and
0: and that you can form habits. Habits, yes. And it's such a it's such a beautiful example of thinking about how architecture mediates our experience of everyday life, because the design of the town or city we live in is going to give form to those walking paths, to those habits, to the bakery, to the coffee shop, to the dinner place, to the park. Do you have any advice about how to think about designing public spaces that can invigorate community while nourishing the need for solitude and privacy? When
1: I started my uh, PhD research, I actually thought that I would create a toolbox for architects to design public spaces. <laughs> but that's of course so it's not nullable like that. The thing is uh, yeah, so the, the, the thing is of course I have learned that we as architects we can we we only create the conditions. So the moment that we make a, a fantastic public space but no one appropriates it and it's an empty space in the end. This is of course uh, the end of my job you could say because I know also really bad spaces. But since they are on the right location, they are fully occupied by people and they enjoy life there and they meet one another. And yeah, so in that sense, bad spaces can be appropriated and it's still a good yeah, in, in the end. It's a, it's a lively, vital public space. What we can do is create the conditions. Yeah? So architects can create the conditions. And I do think that it's in, in that sense, I, I see quite an attention on public space right now meaning that there is more quality, there's more eye for detail. and So there is, when I think of public spaces from the 90s, yeah, of last age, then it was all, let's say, on a, on a very tight budget, but there's now quite a bit of budget to create more nice spaces. The difficulty here is, the moment that you create more nice spaces, it's often also smoothening the public life. So these spaces are not meant, yeah, these are rather exclusive then in the end. So a little bit roughness. The
0: highly aestheticized, yeah, aestheticized spaces yeah. become exclusive. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 So the, it's all—it's a fine line. Sometimes you you need to leave it rough so that people can really appropriate it themselves. It doesn't have to. Sometimes you need more bigger spaces. Sometimes you need smaller spaces. It's it's all depending on the conditions, on the circumstances. That's the difficulty here.
0: You have me wondering how we can go out and appropriate the sidewalks for more ambiguous use.
1: Well, that's that's of course what you see in the kind in the kind of reclaim the streets movement. Eh? So that they pull out a, f- a few old banks in the street and they start uh, barbecue there, or uh, eh? or they or they uh, appropriate in, uh, a parking lot, indeed with nice benches and some greenery, or uh, yeah, appropriate in the public space. It's as simple as that. A kid go out and create a painting in the, on, the, on the street walk with chalkboard, for instance. So that's, of course, the, the sidewalk is, is mentioned for, for walking, but of course you can create, it's a canvas as well, and you can put out your bench, a lamp, and uh, uh, you can, of course, I know that in the uh, United States most of these sidewalks are concrete laps, but in uh, Europe it's often tiles. So what, what is mentioned, just lift a few tiles and put trees in it. Below the surface, there's the beach. <laughs>
0: <laughs> renegade tree planting
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. so making it more green no that's that. so the, the, the this appropriation of these spaces it's it's the um, or making it ambiguous more ambiguous is is just recognizing the potentials of particular uh, space
0: a very spatial thinker. And by that, I mean, she was a writer of space. She was interested in how we appear in private, how we appear in social spaces, how we appear in public spaces. And in The Human Condition, which was published in 1958, uh, she talks about these different spaces that we navigate on a daily basis. And I think it's worth noting that when she's talking about these spaces, the uh, public, private, social, they're in English, they're often read as sphere, or realm. But when Arndt translated the book into German, she wrote Raum, what a which means space. So in your work, you talk about turning to the human condition for language for a vocabulary of architecture. And you talk about four principles about how we think about space with Arendt. Can you walk us through that?
1: For me, very it, it has been very important that Arendt really writes space in the end. So before I started to read Hannah Arendt, I, of course, I knew this concept, public space, of course, but also more the political side. And then I always had public sphere, public realm, public domain, so how does that relate to concrete space and of course I started to learn let's say that public sphere is actually more the term that uh, Habermas uses but that Habermas has this discursive and the kind of the idea of the rational and um, that there might be a consensus in the uh, in the end the moment that we have a rational discourse and that Arendt has a more agonistic approach for me that that has been very important because the And of course, uh, as I said, we only create the conditions of this kind of political life. But the idea that public space is not a space of um, coziness, uh, that's the common image, of course. When you see projects, architectural projects uh, presented then it's then these public spaces that eh, people of course they are all good looking people and they're shopping or they're dancing or they're sitting on a terrace so all nice but of course this is not our experience of public space indeed you can have an accident you can bump into someone else or fall from a, from a stair or whatever it's important to acknowledge that but also then let's say this creates a space also of plurality for me this kind of idea of consensus or Coziness that creates this kind of smoothening, eh? the smoothing out everything that we don't like. It's hard to say we, we need to design spaces for unhoused people or, or young people that, that want to make noise or, or dirt, whatever. Eh? The teenagers, let say, that also need their meeting spaces. But it's important to acknowledge that that we need spaces for these people,
0: and we d- we don't have to like everything that's going on no. in the public space no. to acknowledge that everybody has a right to yeah. be there. Uh,
1: but but for for an architect, it's really hard to say that you should not design everything eh? because our incentive is to design everything. So uh, to, uh, to the, until the until the the final nail, uh, let's say in the wood. So uh, but that's that's uh, so we we also need to leave room for for. Things that happen, eh? that that uh, that might happen, but it, that's really a, a, a difficult design question in the uh, in the end to do that.
0: The unpredictability of not knowing. You know.
1: The unpredictability, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then for me, uh, what what has been important in the end is that public space is in is is um, the space of appearance. So that brought me actually to the question of the of the threshold. So this is this for me is the most important design question. That's where actually the private and the public touches upon uh, each other. Huh? So that's the tension where you uh, where you withdraw or where you appear again. Uh, so but this this is a moment also um, also a physical moment. Huh? It's 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 a it's a real line. You you go from one temperature to the other. It's uh, you go from your own uh, safe uh, surroundings and everything you know into the kind of unknown. So this this is this is an important moment and then I think um so the the facade often we architect well there's many ways to design the facade but this moment of of entry the entrance is a very very important moment and also the window of course because then then but that's about being, well not being seen but but seeing others uh, in in a way you can you can say but so but of course the entry is not just a door You have a canopy. You have a stoop. Uh, Maybe you have an entry in hole. So this the the threshold can be a space in its own. Um, Yeah, that that have been that have been real important insights uh, for me. uh, This transition, this moment.
0: I'm really reminded here of Walter Benjamin's quote from the Arcades Project, where he says, "We have grown poor in threshold experiences." Yeah, Yeah,
1: definitely. We've lost the threshold that's that's also the modern i think in 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 uh, well I, you, I cannot generalize it but what you have seen particularly in the more poor let's say modern architecture everything was rather flat so there was no room for for an extra gesture let's say at the entrance uh, so an extra canopy or or indeed a little bit of a niche or uh, but that's all all really important to create this this, this, uh, this moment, uh, this, this threshold experience, yes. Uh,
0: and yeah. spaces where the private can start to spill out a yeah. little of that threshold yeah. onto the stoop, onto the front yard, exactly. onto the yeah. barbecue, on the sidewalk.
1: Yeah. You can put your plants on the stoop. So that's that's what's what happen- <laughs> what happening. Yeah. yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I have I, now. I have to. I have to add just one one question because I think you're also touching on Arend's distinction in the human condition between labor and work. Because there's the physical act of of building and labor that goes into the construction of a design, but on the other is the kind of creative element that you are describing of. Of imagining, building of the aesthetic judgment, and do you do you think about these distinctions in your own practice between the kind of homo faber, the hands that build and the design? Do you think Arens' distinction holds up, or do we see it collapsing in architecture?
1: Well, building is actually then the more everyday uh, uh, environment, or that was that that what actually is. Is, is is totally uh, justified only by economic calculations, let's say. So that's the majority of the building environment. The end is not the building, but the profit. So that's, when, when I just cut, cut, cut the corners, let's say, quickly, then it's, that's the, the distinction. And the current condition, do we still have architecture? Is there still an architecture that is able to unite the people? Or is, is this kind of economical thinking also... Uh, have, have a grip now on architecture. When I take serious Aaron's idea of that the environment huh, that, that they really that this really conditions us, then I think this, this political idea that architecture unites us and separates us as, uh, 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 so. to, to refer to the table again this is also part and parcel of our everyday environment. We should not lose that. Eh? We should not leave that to the market of economics, but we should should see how important that is politically. So I would not... Uh, I, I don't agree there with... Uh, well, I see the, the, the division, but I'm afraid of this division because, because it easily neglects the things that, that to me are really important, the everyday environment. Uh, but then, of course, the had um, this this artistic or 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 the idea of imagination for me that's indeed bringing in the action part the the idea that you can that that this brings us really close to, to what Arendt writes about politics so politics is imagination how things also can be different well that's 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 my daily practice that's what I do as an architect I try to think how things also can be different. And I hope that I can do that for the people and not against the... Uh, in uh, w- with regard to gentrification processes, for instance. Uh
0: the world can always be other than what it is and we have wonderful people like you thinking about these questions on a daily basis with with people like hannah Arendt. and Hans Terrods i think that's a wonderful place to end our conversation and i want to thank you so much for being with us on this podcast this conversation could could keep going on my pleasure Arendt Between Worlds is a co-production of the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. It was produced and edited by Lisa Bartfy, music by Dylan Mattingly, and it was hosted by me, Samantha Rose Hill. We have more episodes for you on Thinking with Hannah Arendt now. Until next time.